I'm Brandon Bartnick, and this is the Future of Mobility Podcast. The Future of Mobility Podcast is focused on the pursuit of safe, sustainable, effective, and accessible transportation of goods and people. Given the critical nature of the world's climate and energy needs, these topics have never been more important, and they're certainly important to me. So, this podcast is a weekly interview series in which I learn from and put the spotlight on the people helping to develop and implement the technology required to move us forward. Who am I? As mentioned, my name is Brandon Bartnick, and I'm an engineer who realized that making a positive impact is the most important thing to me, both through this podcast and my career in the industry. If you're passionate about any of the topics I cover here, please feel free to reach out on LinkedIn or Twitter. I'd love to connect. Also, if you hear anything you like, please consider sharing the future mobility with a friend or colleague. This podcast is brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. Technology innovation is great, but it doesn't mean anything if we can't bring our impactful products to life, which means we have to build them. And unfortunately, that's easier said than done, especially for startups and evolving companies that need a reliable option for low volume builds. That's where we come in. Edison is your turnkey manufacturing partner, specializing in build and assembly of highly complex products in annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands, utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you need a trusted manufacturing partner, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to reach out to me directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or by visiting my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Now to this week's episode. Today's guest is Charles Egan. Charles is Chief Technology Officer for BlackBerry. In this role, Charles is responsible for the advancement of new technologies, driving innovation within emerging markets, and advancing security capabilities that leverage AI and machine learning. So, BlackBerry, very well-known household name, known for the mobile phone market, not where they're playing now, haven't been there for some time. This is a software company, an IoT company, and we talk automotive software, automotive security, how BlackBerry has transformed, the importance of what they are doing to open source and allow development of applications by non-OEMs with their Ivy platform alongside Amazon and a whole bunch more. Really fun discussion here. I think surprising if uh, you see the BlackBerry name and you don't know exactly what to expect. I highly recommend you give this a listen to Charles. It was, it was fantastic to talk with. So I'll leave it there for now. Please enjoy this conversation with Charles Egan. Today, I'm joined by Charles Egan. Charles, thanks for coming on the podcast. That's my looking forward to this, Brandon. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I think this is a, a very fun, important topic. Also one that's a, a stretch a bit. I mean, I come from a mechanical background and do a lot in kind of the mechanical assembly space and the, the physical product, but the uh, the software side, the electrical, the security side of the vehicle is, is critical, especially as we are expanding into new forms of transportation and the vehicles evolving. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to get your perspective on a few of these thoughts. So would you mind starting with kind of just a intro of what what are you doing? What's, what's the role at BlackBerry? And why, I guess why also why is BlackBerry in this space that we're talking about here? Sure. No, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> yeah. So I am the chief technology officer at BlackBerry. And BlackBerry um, is a name that there's probably good recall for lots of people with the name BlackBerry, but I'll educate those that are not completely familiar with uh, a little bit more about that. Um, and, and maybe I'll do that and then just talk how my role fits in that charter. Mm -hmm. So BlackBerry has two main business units. One is called cybersecurity and the other one is IoT. 
And within the cybersecurity business unit, um, we're typically, we're providing security for banks, uh, governments, uh, anything where there's high assurance uh, needed. So we do endpoint protection and traditional cybersecurity, threat hunting and security operation centers and, um, you know, for these, for these, these businesses. Um, you know, one, one thing within our cybersecurity portfolio, we have, uh, uh, we use AI and machine learning for doing, you know, helping the, the good guys uh, protect against all the threats that are, that are emerging. Mm -hmm. And on the mobility side, probably more topical for this conversation within our IoT business unit, um, uh, we have a, a BlackBerry QNX software. Uh, BlackBerry QNX is used in probably over 55 uh, uh, automotive OEMs. So Audi, BMW, Ford, GM, Toyota, Volkswagen, Volvo, among others. Um, and and we're, we're, we have design wins with 24 out of the top 25 EV makers. So um, BlackBerry may be touching your lives more today than it ever was in the mobile phone space. So we haven't made a phone since 2015, uh, but some of this high assurance, trusted um, uh, capabilities that we built with our phones, you never heard of a BlackBerry getting rooted and people used it for trusted communications. We created the mobile communication space. And so we learned a lot in that and now that we've transitioned to uh, being a software company under our CEO, John Chen, we're, we're, we're basically, we've been focused um, on sort of providing software solutions in this trusted space ever since, with a big focus on automotive for a, for a long part of our history. And when you say software solutions in the automotive space, can you expand a bit further? So what what what, are, what is it that you're actually providing here? Yeah, so, so right now as vehicles are becoming more more complex with more software. I would say we're still in the early days of the software-defined vehicle, but that's really mm -hmm. a big uh, change agent on the horizon, probably the biggest one in the history of automobile, uh, uh, according to Motor Trend. But uh, we provide the the operating system that runs at the lowest level, uh, like on top of the hardware. So we have a safety-certified operating system, BlackBerry QNX. Um, we also have a uh, safety-certified hypervisor so as, as computers get more, as, as computers are more like servers in the modern day automobiles, we ended up with, with different uh, guest operating systems running on top, like you would in a traditional compute serving cluster. So, so we provide this safety certified hypervisor. We also provide the operating system and we have safety certified software libraries. So um, we have a very foundational piece that runs at the lowest level of the automobile. And it runs in many of the, the nodes within a vehicle. So it could be the instrument cluster, the infotainment system, the networking gateway, the digital instrument cluster. Uh, there's, there's many different CPUs uh, running in the car. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then more recently, uh, for the last three years, we've been working on something called BlackBerry Ivy with Amazon. And that's a joint, a true joint development and and that's that's BlackBerry Ivy is designed to get data off of the car, off of the vehicle, so that application developers can build applications on top of the vehicle without being an automotive OEM software developer. 
much like the the Android ecosystem brought lots of application developers to the mobile phone space, uh, BlackBerry Ivy allows for more applications to be brought into the automotive context. So we're just on the on the verge of launching this co-development with Amazon. Yeah, and I think there's many of these things that you just mentioned that I'm going to want to dig deeper into. Maybe we start there. And you know this space much better than I do, but one of my core beliefs is that we are just scratching the surface on the connected vehicle space and the use of data, right? It's like vehicles are collecting such an incredible amount of data, but also it's useless if you can't access this in the right way and make sense of it and build the applications on top of it so that the end users, whether it's people in the vehicle or adjacent in the ecosystem around them can actually utilize that data. And can, can you speak to like, where yeah, where are we in this and how does this IV development help us get to the next phase? Yeah, so, so I, I agree with you that we're in the very early phase of uh, a number of, um, you know, thrusters that we're about to press go on these thrusters. So, you know, the electrification is one of them. Um, mm-hmm. the, the connectivity with 5G, like very high speed connectivity being deployed uh, globally, um, the increase of the compute within the vehicle with which to do uh, software, uh, you know, the capability to run the software. And, and I believe that uh, software becomes the, the change agent to get uh, new functionality in the vehicle. We couldn't have imagined what 100 apps would be absolutely essential on our mobile phone 10 years ago. And so if we if we put ourselves into the future, there's going to be a number of software apps that are critical on our vehicle that, that we've come to depend on. And, and I think that you're right, Ivy is an enabling technology to um, allow some of these creative software solution providers the ability to write software because... Up until this point, it's mostly been the automotive OEMs, uh, which which tends to focus on core functionality. You mm-hmm. know, be it something like uh, environmental EV efficiency or uh, social uh, entertainment options, as cars become more autonomous, which is probably one more element that on this change agent curve. You know, car cars are going. Uh, uh, with more sort of uh, driver assist functionality. And as that evolves, it evolves towards, you know, full autonomy. But on the way, uh, there's more and more capabilities that will be added to the vehicle that, you know, you're already seeing lane keep assist or, you know, the ability to follow a car uh, with a certain distance or maybe to be notified when your EV charge uh, is getting lower and you're getting Mm -hmm. away from the EV charge station. So there's lots of these capabilities that will be coming in. And and all of these things are sort of in the early phase as it all comes together under the banner of the software-defined vehicle. And when you talk about application development, how much are you thinking about applications that will be valuable for the private use owners of a given vehicle versus for fleets and corporate owners of vehicles versus adjacent businesses and government entities and like who who do you think are the real winners or the people here who are going to be taking advantage of this yeah i think i think that's a great question and it's probably a question uh most people in their mind jump to the private owner application experience so something in the car cockpit where where you're have some widget that you're playing with but it could be Mm -hmm. it could be the automotive oem 
that, that has an application that is monitoring millions of vehicles to come up with uh, cyber, uh, cyber threat detection and prevention. So the end user doesn't see it at all. It could be a fleet that is looking at uh, efficiency of the drivers and uh, whatever the vehicles are doing, it can track it. Uh, it could be environmental controls or something that, that like, so it, it really, the user interface for these applications could be the car, it, it could be the security operations center, it could be the automotive OEM, it could be some other, as uh, you know, from mobility focus point of view, the uh, multi-use uh, of cars, so multiple owners, or you know, you, you you get the kind of a vehicle that you need. So it's sort of uh, transactional uh, engagement with the vehicles, uh, more more safety, more cybersecurity as well. Because uh, one of the well, one of the I guess side effects of software and connectivity is the cyber implications of that. So that's something you ideally want to design in versus retrofit. Yeah. And can you, can we expand a, a bit there? So one of, I, I put these adjacent to each other, but the ideas of functional safety and cybersecurity for mobility domains. And for, for whatever reason, I'm able to intuitively grasp functional safety much, much better. And like the idea of putting together safety cases and this kind of legal rational documentation of how you're coming across and all, all these inputs are coming up to a safe final product. Intuitively, I understand what the, the words mean for cybersecurity and yeah, threat detection and putting you know, case, cyber casings around software and stuff. But at the same time, I have a really hard time really uh, grasping what we're talking about here. Could, could you maybe expand on or ex introduce that topic or um, what, what's the best way that you have of, of explaining what cybersecurity really means in an automotive domain? Yeah. Uh, and, and to me, um, you know, uh, in, 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 in one sense, Within BlackBerry, we say uh, safety and cybersecurity can be used interchangeably because you really can't have one without the other. Um, and um, you know, to our credit, over the the last period, cars have become very safe with uh, type approvals and safe, you know, serious safety certifications that happen. And and I think I, I think that will continue. So. Um, I think with cybersecurity, we need to make sure that, um, and, and your question kind of implied some of this, uh, uh, you, you need to be partitioned so that the software updates that are affecting the safety critical systems are, are being very carefully partitioned so they cannot be compromised. And we, we've already seen a number of cases where software intended for the infotainment was able to overwrite low-level system software in a number of automotive use cases. And these are cases where the software update mechanism wasn't carefully partitioned to prevent updating software that it wasn't intended to update, so the low-level software. So, so we need to make sure the functional safety components are, are partitioned and that the software that's going into them has the same level of uh, um, scrutiny, testing, and certification that it has that, that, that it has today. Um, and at the same time, uh, a large volume of the software that will be happening will not be affecting the functional safety aspects. It could be um, entertainment or it could be something, 
something that's important like EV range, but it's not affecting braking and steering and, and things like that. So, so, so these these kinds of um, um, controls need to be put in place to make sure the system uh, system is pro properly partitioned. And um, you know, there's a whole bunch of terminology in cyber. Like we talk about zero trust uh, uh, zero trust technologies. That means that only authorized uh, individuals or systems are allowed to make changes to, uh, you know, to to areas where where there could be a safety impact. So make sure that you know the dealer network or the user or the OEM uh, has very tight, uh, you know, good cyber practices to make sure that um, you know hackers cannot get in and pretend that they're a automotive repair place and, and inject malicious code. So we know a lot about cybersecurity, and I think we need to make sure that cybersecurity best practices isn't, isn't overlooked as we race for functionality on the vehicle. So, so I think if we, if we think of cybersecurity like functional safety and we put the same checks and balances in place, well, um, we have way more attack surfaces to watch for now in a vehicle, if we have 5G, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, near-field communication, you know, EV charging uh, protocols, um, mm -hmm. uh, and even every mobile phone that goes into the car could be one of the attack vehicles. So we need to make sure we, like, on, on the positive side, every time we design a new system, like mobile phones are more secure than laptops because we learned to partition things more when we started building mobile phones. And, and now when we, when we look at automobiles, we'll learn from mobile phones and servers and computers to make sure that our best practices are, are put in place for these two-ton servers that are uh, uh, connected at high speeds. Yeah, and uh, maybe elaborating that on that either for, even further, so maybe think about it differently. The Part of the reason why I think the functional safety comes from me is because, so I, I guess I segmented my mind between unintentional negative events versus malicious intent, which you're trying to protect from him. So I come from mechanical background. I lead Edison, which is a contract manufacturing company, and I'm very familiar with DFMEA, PFMEA process and flows and risk analysis and risk registers and the idea of, hey, let's figure out all the ways that this thing can go wrong and let's protect for them. And functional safety, the ISO 26262 standard has some similar tools in place, right? But right. one of the core assumptions there is that you're assuming good intent. Like we're not thinking about, hey, what if a mechanic is trying to mess up our whole operation or someone comes up and tries it? Like that's not part of the thought process. Yeah. So what are the what are the tools? And you've already touched on one or two of these, but what, what other tools are in the tool belt for protecting against malicious attacks? Yeah, so so you did talk about the 26262 is a safety uh, safety certifications, and, and our software is 26262 uh, certified. Um, we're actually seeing things like WP29. There's uh, similar cybersecurity best practices that are being, um, uh, you know, prescribed so that, so that, we have some sense of what good looks like in terms of uh, this is secure. Trust me, and then you know that 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 doesn't necessarily um, uh, you know provide much confidence. So I I, I, do, I do think there's there's a um, there's some cybersecurity best practices that 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 I think need to be brought into these this um, um, 
you know, this ecosystem to, to make sure that the functional safety, uh, you know, you know, like, like you had identified, the, there's there's not a willingness or in a uh, a scenario where there's a malicious actor in the center of a control system uh, that that has to be taken into account. So I, I think I think we need to sort of uh, do as much partition, partitioning as possible uh, to to make sure that um, you know w w one example would be you know. Uh, we call it defense in depth, and and you you, you really want to make sure that the the systems um, have to be designed uh, with the with the acknowledgement that a attack is possible. Like like if you assume that it's not attackable, um, then you're you're probably not on a very secure path. And then in the event of attack, what what will you do? And like what what steps mm -hmm. do you take? And make sure that that is designed into the system because like a functional safety system, you might have a debug mode turned on that you forget to turn off that changes the timing of a system, which might be the very same uh, detection mechanism as a cyber attack because the timing of the system has changed. So, uh, you know, we are already prepared for uh, very complex systems, you know, complex systems that are tightly coupled uh, that are coming together with a very uh, diverge, divergent supply chain. That's true from the mechanical point of view, um, but it gets amplified in the software point of view. So, you know, looking at the software pedigree, the software supply chain and the software bill of materials, making mm -hmm. sure you've got uh, non-symmetric encryption. So, so you, you need very good, um, device signing with encryption anytime there's communication going uh, going to the vehicle or even within the vehicle so that uh, personal information or attacks cannot be uh, uh, easily done. Yeah, I, I guess that, that makes makes a lot of sense. I'm sure I know we, we can talk about it here. I'm sure there's uh, the actual work that goes into this is <laughs> pretty instrumental and kind of the devil's in the detail, right? Of, yeah. uh, I mean, I assume there's a lot of work, but then also like the diligence of actually doing it correctly and having building a culture and an organization in which these things are prioritized has to be paramount. Yeah. And Brandon, one thing to keep in mind too, BlackBerry is a component supplier to automotive tier ones and OEMs. So we, we provide components for autonomous systems and for ADAS, um, but but we, we don't build the complete vehicle, right? So we are... Mm -hmm. uh, um, you know, being being safety certified and uh, TUV certified are are a trusted component. We have some architectural elements within our QNX operating system. Um, if you compare it to like Linux, for example, um, within Linux system, device drivers run at at uh, system privileges, which means a compromised device driver has ability to do a lot more damage than within QNX, which is a microkernel. Um, a, a very small amount of, of the system is is running in privileged mode. So, and the system is inherently partitioned. So, a compromise on a QNX system is uh, much 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 less uh, severe than a compromise on you know in some of the other other systems. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. That, yeah. That that makes sense. And, and I. I guess I, this is probably going to be a foolish question, which I know some of the buzzwords, but uh, hopefully you know where I'm going here. But are you guys involved in 
much in, in kind of the, the vehicle level architecture development, right? And I understand there's kind of a shift between a bunch of independent computers throughout the, the vehicle versus the idea of, okay, should we have central compute nodes versus should we have edge compute and various, I mean, like a, a LiDAR sensor or something like that. Is that something that you guys are kind of just reacting to whatever the OEM you're defining? Or are you also trying to um, define kind of what, what's the right route for the future as we build com increasingly complex vehicles? Yeah, so so it's definitely the trend in the industry and, and a fun way I've described it, it's sort of becoming like a very distributed reptile into an integrated mammal, like the much more powerful systems. And some of that is for cost reasons. Some of it's for software as software defined uh, means we need more more compute. Uh, uh, with the advent of things like our hypervisor, we can create uh, completely partitioned operating systems running on this new new compute node that's been pulled together. So, so I, I think, um, and the ability to sort of start to leverage machine learning on the edge, th these are all things that are leading to this vehicle architecture evolution. So I, I think we're we're an enabling technology to to support those kinds of uh, architectural shifts. Uh, you know, which came first, the chicken and the egg. It's a uh, it's an enabling technology which makes uh, these more complex future software-defined architectures possible, because uh, without which uh, uh, we, we wouldn't be able to sort of, this architecture wouldn't be as viable. So, so I think mm -hmm. we are a key part of sort of the ecosystem enabling this future. And how much are you limiting scope to the traditional automotive space versus some of the heavy duty commercial vehicle spaces or even the uh, you know adjacent mobility sectors. So like when I, future mobility, the companies that I tend to cover, it's you know all movement of goods and people. So we're talking material handling, construction, mining, um, forestry, my, uh, marine, aviation, wide scope. What, what is the, what are the kind of the boundaries and where you guys are focusing at this point? Yeah, so, so the, um, uh... The IoT business unit, we supply a wide range of, of this ecosystem. So, so we have uh, truck divisions, trains. Um, we, we're used a lot in um, uh, assembly line control systems, uh, pipelines, um, you know, smart city in general. So, um, you know, I say planes, trains, and automobiles, space shuttle, like, like anywhere high assurance. Uh, is needed. Uh, our our technology can be used, be it secure communication. Um, we have a company, or we acquired a company, Certicom, that does um, credential management. So that's used very large scale in hospital equipment and um, you know pipeline uh, control systems. Um, so so I the 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 range of sort of the connected IoT ecosystem, um, you know, beyond automobiles is, is, is broad. Um, automobiles become, became our first focus in BlackBerry Ivy because that's, a, that's an area where Amazon and BlackBerry are very focused today. Uh, because we have such a long product life cycle, we need to get these, these systems in place to be able to build these long development cycles and and enable that, and it's also an area where the software-defined future is felt very very acutely. So so mm -hmm. I, I think the um, 
The, the answer is quite, quite broadly across, um, you know, across this, this connected, this connected IOT space. And how much overlap is it? Cause I mean, from the one perspective I could imagine, like, I don't know, the electrification space, right? There's a lot of investment in battery technology that then, yeah, sure. It's not perfectly applicable to all these different segments, but like the bones are there. And then now all these other application segments are building off of it for various forms of electrification. Is it that, you know, once you put this automotive solution in place, then the building blocks are there and it quickly can be applied to other areas or how, how much overlap is there? Yeah, I think the, the you know, the automotive space has a certain, um, you know, uh, attributes that are that are unique to automotive. In, in some ways, the product life cycle is longer time to market from a design mm -hmm. win to start a production is longer with automotive. Uh, so I think sometimes the other connected spaces can be a little bit more, um, a little bit more agile. But but the technology is very similar in terms of you need secure communication. You need to do over the air software updates. Uh, you need to make sure you've got uh, you know uh, secure. You know you're never transporting clear text. And you know a big part of our solution is is real time. So it has to be very performant because things need to happen quickly in a deterministic amount of time. Though those those capabilities that a microkernel enables are are fairly common across the ecosystem because uh, even though the computers are getting more powerful, the compute is still constrained a little bit. Like it's not like a a desktop or a laptop where where you have the latest you know gigabytes and uh, megahertz, you know, you're not able to update the hardware as frequently. Um, so, so I think um, the real time embedded aspect of our industry is pretty common across all of this, uh, the mobility space that, that you talked about. And maybe a real related question, but how big was the leap from the traditional you know, mo mobile phone space to automotive? And I have to imagine just about everyone kind of the initial response is, is they've this, yeah, there's some, whatever, you probably heard every joke or question about, hey, I'm used to the the, the old BlackBerry mobile phone. But the, I mean, just you you at the beginning of this, like the the statement of, yeah, we we defined or developed the industry for secure communication for mobile devices. We're doing the same thing in the automotive space. I mean, it seems like a, a pretty straightforward le leap there. But like how, how big on the back end technically is it actually? Yeah, so, so the... It's it's interesting. I I've met some fascinating experts at BlackBerry, like people that have spent their entire career working on secure boot, uh, or uh, now um, the, there was a little bit of fast tracking. So in 2011, BlackBerry acquired QNX. Um, QNX was already an automotive de facto standard when acquired by BlackBerry. Um, we use QNX to build the BB10 phone because we thought it was the perfect. So in a, in a sense, QNX came to BlackBerry as the the right uh, technology for building the mobile phone. Now, uh, it was an amazing phone technologically uh, for efficient battery efficiency. You know, some of the features that we had on that phone are just coming out on modern phones. We had no home button, we used gestures. It was, you know, all touch, you know, things that people didn't know BlackBerry didn't only make keyboard devices, but um, so so in 2011 we were already an automotive uh, 
uh, you know, standard. At that time, we were mostly used in infotainment. So that was the mm -hmm. historical automotive focus. Um, we had begun to pivot already within the QNX to get safety certification and to get the high assurance parts of the future automobiles. So our vision was, as software is becoming more prevalent, we need to be able to uh, to meet that demand. So we pivoted to make our software safety certified. Um, and there was two choices you could make. Like generally when you make safety cert cert certification, you take a, a copy of your software and you certify it. Um, but, but then it's very hard to bring them back together again. So so what we decided to do was make all our software safety certified so we didn't end up with a version problem. So so we began the safety certification uh, back back then. And so as we evolved our automotive suite, uh, you know, part of our mobile phone experience uh, and part of our, you know, part of building this secure phone on top of QNX then accelerated into the automotive space. So, um, and, and, and so our IoT roots are really strongly within BlackBerry QNX, which led us to BlackBerry Ivy without Amazon and our cyber roots uh, long before, like even when we were making phones, um, enterprise needed to make sure that policy and security was applied on those phones. Things like you're never sending corporate documents over a unsecured Wi-Fi. You just enforce that in a policy on the phone. So, so these sort of policy and uh, management of these endpoints becomes very topical for controlling the application store that shows up on a vehicle or how you do software updates. So it, it was fairly uh, um, seamless, the transition. I think the biggest change was how you go from a hardware company to a software company. But I, I mm -hmm. think our automotive component was always a software company. So it was it, it was a little bit more automotive OEMs don't say, oh, by the way, we're running BlackBerry in our car. And uh, so so the consumer uh, obvious part of the uh, of the software uh, fell away as we went from mobile phone devices that said BlackBerry to technologies that people integrate into their secure uh, drones and cars and trucks and trains. And maybe a related question. So what then is, what are the key drivers that lead your customers to want to utilize what you're offering? And I assume there's I mean, first of all, theoretically, any OEM could develop their application layer in their software, their software library, right? I mean, yeah, sure. I imagine it's much more efficient and effective to utilize something that exists. But even if they come to that conclusion, I don't think you guys are the only ones in this space necessarily. It's so like, what what are the differentiators or what are the things that BlackBerry does really well in those domains? Well, it's interesting. So if you, if you look at Linux, for example, Linux uses a lot of open source software. Um, to get Linux safety certified uh, is, is a very different ballgame. So in terms of safety certified hypervisors or safety certified operating systems, um, it, it's not a very long list. And hmm. the functionality of our software, it's very real time, so it's very fast. And and we have great partnerships with you know all the hardware vendors uh, into and you know as we're starting to fire up modern architectures that have machine learning on the edge and special network processors. Um, like like our, our technology is fast, it's reliable, 
it's safety certified, it's proven. So the the uh, the number of uh, 10,000 hours you need to be able to build into this automotive ecosystem, it, it's a very, um, it, it's a very unique environment and we've been doing it for, uh, you know, 20 years. So, so that, that experience, um, and, and now as these vehicles are becoming more connected, our cyber experience on top of that, like every automotive, every connected IOT device will need to be monitored by a security operations center. That's, that's another area of our strong expertise that, that we can help that, that, that we can help with. How do you do security monitoring, detection and responding to cyber attacks? Um, how do you do secure software updates? I, I think our our resume is pretty unique in terms of, you know, that that's why we're in 55 OEMs and 24 of 25 EVs, because uh, there's a lot of trust built into our technology and a lot of experience. We also talk about the fact that we deliver on time. When you have a a uh, automotive OEM that has a start of production, that's 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 so important that those dates are hit. And mm -hmm. you've probably heard in industries uh, how software is notorious for being, uh, uh, you know, approximately on schedule and and late. Uh, so so mm -hmm. we run a pretty tight ship on, you know, building the software we say we're going to build, supporting it and deploying it in a very uh, uh, consistent manner, and we've built trust up with with all these OEMs. I'm sure this is a complex question, but can you speak at all? How, how do you do that from an organizational and a leadership perspective and a culture perspective? How, how do you build in kind of that uh, ability to set a timeline that's reasonable and then kind of stick to that timeline when there's threats and a bunch of things? I'm sure that distractions that could come up that could uh, deviate from that. Yeah, so so it's interesting. I I, I think we've got some uh, we've got some strong industry leaders in terms of safety engineering and how, how you uh, how you do uh, safe software development. So a lot of it comes down to training. Uh, we have certain process for our um, for our software practices that mean we the things we commit to are well architected and understood, and and um, you know we. We tend to focus on on our roadmap um, and our deliverables um, over a much longer time frame than you know this this rapidly changing software that can lead you know so so I I think I think we've been serving the automotive market for you know for a long time and you uh, you, you sort of build the skills to do that in a deterministic way um, and and part of that is clear requirements gathering. Uh, very thorough testing, um, you know, clean architectures that are extensible. Um, like, like the w when you make a decision, you need to make a decision not just for today, but for ten years into the future. So you have architectural uh, options to evolve. You don't design yourself into a corner. And mm -hmm. you know, having many eyes study the architecture so they get the gift of multiple insights to to make it the best possible and. You know, I can't say there's not a lot of hard work, and uh, um, let's let's rise to the occasion. But but we we try to uh, you know run a fairly deterministic, uh, mature engineering organization with clear requirements, and um, you know that's it's 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 a it's a fairly well-oiled machine.
Yeah, it's interesting. I, my gut going into that question was that you're going to speak about program management and the ability to drive towards timeline and stuff, which I, I mean, you talked around that yeah. topic, but not specifically. So, so it sounds, at least the way you described it, it sounds like, yeah, if you're able to be diligent and um, robust as an organization and you have this long-term leadership and build the culture, yeah, sure, you still need effective program management, yeah, no, but that no, no, you're, it's, not, it's, you're not trusting it, the program manager yeah. to do everything and pull together a chaotic organization for you. Yeah, no, I, I, effective program management is, is, is a vital part of that mature organization because they hold you accountable, you know, um, there, there's, uh, you know, I've, I've been involved in lots of big software projects in my career and, um, you know, there's the, uh, some software organization, not BlackBerry, but they look at, okay, um, what, uh, are we done? And they say, well, it, it depends. What do you need? And you, you begin a negotiation and you can't, yeah. you can't go into this that you're going to negotiate at the end what done means. Like you need to be you need to be targeting the functionality and then delivering that functionality without a lot of churn because that churn leads to wasted time. And yes, mm -hmm. yeah, hats off to the program managers because they keep you honest and, you know, run that cadence. And, uh, um, you know, we also have, um, you know, we have development tools in the automotive space that I hadn't talked about before, which is important for enabling automotive solutions. And we also have custom engineering. So, if an automotive OEM wants to bring up a new piece of hardware and they need help from us, we, we also provide custom engineering services to make sure that 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 we can help them get what needs to be done quickly. So we also we you know we provide the technologies, but we also provide sort of the wrapping and the care and feeding of that technology on the platform in some cases with automotive OEMs, and we provide the development tools. So it's it's uh uh, it, it's a it's a multifaceted uh, um, offering. Well, I guess with with that line of thinking, oh, how, how do you find the bounds for where you uh, you cut things off, right? Because there's always there's always a next step that you can take. Of yeah, sure, it's great if we provide the the software, but it's all even better if we help them do the application work and implementation. Then it's even like, well, how do you figure out and all like this this is the core expertise and what we do. And there's a lot of services and stuff we provide in this to make sure you're successful, but outside of this is kind of outside of our uh, core domain. Yeah, so they're, they're, um, they're relatively independent organizations. So it hmm. sometimes our custom engineering will be working on product engineering and sometimes product engineering will work on custom engineering. But, but they tend to be different, uh, uh, d different teams focused on, on those, those parts so, so we don't end up trying to do two, two things uh, at the same time. Gotcha. I mean, maybe a, a last uh, question in this in this vein. So, l thinking back at uh, your kind of career development and learnings as a, as a leader and such, can you think of anything from a, a resource perspective, whether it's you know book or course or thought leader or what, whatever, whatever that you uh, that had a big impact on you that you know someone's listening to this and going through and trying and you know getting into leadership positions and trying to build organizations and stuff. Anything that you might recommend that they, they check out. Yeah, so so it, um, uh, the uh, my my uh, my first programming book was Kernan Han and Ritchie, the C programming language, which I which was threadbare by the time I learned embedded C, C programming. It was uh, monumental. Um, I, I I think I've been very fortunate in my career because like computers, networking, robotics, 
mobile phones, all of these massive opportunities just appeared in front of me on the, uh, you know, on on the highway, just to use our mobility analogy. And 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 I think one of the things that caught me early on was finding leaders that had vision to sort of, like I say, don't try to do something 10% better, try to do it 10 times better or 100 times better, like really big thinkers that I saw have these dreams that they would try to work on. And hmm. And to me, that inspired me. Like, what's what's the cool thing that people think is impossible that you think you see see a way through to that, and then try to make it happen. And and I think there, those changes are on the horizon all the time. So, uh, you know, chasing a dream and and looking for sort of the new thing that's going to make a difference, and looking for I think leaders that that excite you or that you've you know you get followership from. I've, I've worked for some fantastic uh, people that really inspired me that I've tried to channel their leadership. And because you learn stuff in school and it, the stuff you see in industry is, uh, is like it, it's important to learn the, the technology, but how do you apply it in large teams? Like I've managed 2000 person teams and um, building a bench of leaders in my 2000 person team was important for me to scale. And then, you know, trying to find what, how to excite them with, you know, sort of uh, good challenges was, was part, of, part of my leadership. So kind of a broad answer, but those are all elements of uh, things that I would encourage people to look out for. I'll have a follow-up with maybe a quick, so, so thinking of building a bench of leaders and how to, how to inspire other leaders and, and thought, like, is there anything from that perspective in building, you know, people who are going to be people leaders that, I don't know, is there anything that you refer to or advice you give or anything? I do. I, um, I say find out what people are good at and put a pile of that in front of them. Like, don't try to make everyone the same. Like, if someone's very operational, you give them hard operational challenges. If someone's a clever architect and they're able to design systems that are 10 times more efficient, you give them, uh, like don't bend to them, don't don't have them bend to you because if they're passionate and they're strong in that area, then the things you can unleash by uh, by by applying that to, uh, to, to me is uh, has been a great, a great strategy for uh, for the for the human uh, aspect of large large scale problem solving. Yeah, yeah, Jenny, you you set yourself up for this next question. So you talked about the uh, the importance of finding someone who's finding you know seeing that that ten x type solution on this horizon and the exciting thing. So in the mobility space that we're talking about here, what what, what are the things that are or the thing or the things that you're super excited about and where you see there's opportunities where, you know, it's not just these, these step function or these not just these marginal changes, but there's step function changes that could be coming here in the next few years. Yeah. So so um tongue in cheek here, the only thing that's missing in the software defined vehicle right now is the software. So so we're right in the beginning of the kinds of things that could be unleashed by software. Because, you know, if you look in the rearview mirror, cars were delivered and they just generally aged over time. There's maybe some small software updates. But to get mm -hmm. true um, um, uh, sort of uh, experience that will be a differentiator for the vehicle, that's still to be invented. What's the, what is the killer app? Is the thing that's on the horizon that will be a change agent. And, you know, we saw what ChatGPT did 
to the industry where it became the topic of conversation everywhere, um, just with some large language model exposure. Um, I believe that on the edge, the ability to do machine learning uh, within the vehicle to, to, to be like right now, all the data gets sent into the cloud, which has a privacy impact, has a security impact and has a delay impact. The ability to do things on the edge that are truly meaningful means that now we have millions of more CPUs that are able to provide this value. So I think to me, edge-based machine learning is exciting. And then what are these killer applications that will come to the car, come to the OEM, come to the fleet um, that is really gonna make this, this unique experience, either make the car safer, make it more environmental, uh, make it more shared, different use cases. I, I think those are still being examined. Like, like if you had asked Motorola and Nokia and um, Samsung and Ericsson what the killer app would be on the mobile phone, I should say Blackbeard in there too, to be fair, uh, they wouldn't have got it right. And so, uh, you know, the automotive OEMs don't necessarily drive the future. I think the, the rest of the innovative potential on the planet will we'll bring some of these cool applications to the software-defined vehicle, I believe. And the, and the punchline, and that's, that's part of what you're, uh, <laughs> you're enabling here with, with your IV platform, right? <laughs> well, you know what? It, it, is, uh, it is an incubation that I really believe in because I believe mm -hmm. the industry needs this. And um, the, I don't think we've figured out how to ramp to the volume of software that, you know, in a safety-certified way that the, mm -hmm. like how you mix high volume software updates with type approvals is an unsolved problem. And, and so I think the ability to do that in a deterministic way, yeah, you know, I'm fairly caught out by you on that, Brandon, but it, it is, it is something I, I, you know, that, that I believed in and that I think, you know, from my automotive history, from early Q and X days to my mobile phone days, to my current automotive focus, it, it's all leading up to this, so it's uh, you, you can see it playing out from a distance. Yeah, and, and thanks, Charlie. This has been a very fun discussion. I mean, I've been thinking about software and, and or it's software adjacent stuff for for some time in the mobility space. But I think this has has helped to connect a few dots for me and think about you know, yeah, software defined vehicle. I, I understand kind of conceptually what goes into this, and um, I, I think the gap I had really in my my thinking, which I mean isn't fully formed by that you're helping me get closer there is yes we have this evolution to electrification more connected more shared more uh, likely automated or assisted vehicle mm -hmm. ecosystem but kind of the it seems like there's a space likely for software and application work to be done that is going to potentially move some of if not all of these things into a space that yeah maybe maybe we can't even picture right now when i'm thinking about exactly what all of these futures are going to look like as, as they come together yeah yeah I, I i i think that's very true cool so anything else uh anything we missed here that you were hoping to cover or uh yeah anything else no no i i, I think um the only thing and I, th I think i touched on it um would the one of the interesting things for blackberry is the fact that with the IoT world becoming more connected and more CPU, it, it does form sort of the bridging between the two the two parts of BlackBerry, which is cybersecurity and IoT. And so uh, as the CTO in BlackBerry, I get to work across all teams. So, you know, focusing on automotive cybersecurity, 
uh, it is a very interesting opportunity and challenge for me. So I think, you know, how how we apply this cybersecurity principles into this connected vehicle and just the IoT space in general is is uh, we can learn from the past. Like those that don't learn from the past are destined to repeat it. I think we can make sure we take our best practices and we apply that knowledge into you know, securing and protecting the connected automobile. And we can make it a lot safer if we do that. Cool. Yeah, I think I think that's a good place to leave it. Like I said, really appreciate it. Fun, fun discussion here. I think we covered a lot of a lot of good ground. So thank you, Charles. Uh, definitely we'll be following along and, and rooting for you. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Brandon. Appreciate it. Take care. I appreciate the talk today. Thanks. Well, there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Charles Egan. So what stands out to me for few things. One, just getting into cybersecurity, I think, and I talked about this in the episode, safety, security, two paramount ideas as we're rolling out new technologies, new software to various mobility applications. We need to have a firm grasp on making sure that these things are hardened and that they are not vulnerable to external malicious attacks. Cybersecurity, the way in which BlackBerry helps to protect the core software and functions critically. So it was great learning from Charles about what goes into that. Also exploring this idea of application development and software development. I think it sounds obvious and we talk about this all the time of, okay, we're building software to find vehicles. The software is the future, right? And AI and machine learning and all all these types of things, how is this actually going to transform the mobility space? And talking about the analogy with the cell phone, right? And how application development unearthed a whole new realm of possibility and a new use for that device and technology that could not have been seen previously. No one could have predicted exactly how that would have played out. And I hadn't thought about this previously but i mean it's not crazy to think that we're in a similar situation right now with the automotive automobile or various other mobility technologies or vehicles we're going through a shift software applications software development the potential is yeah i think we're just scratching the surface and especially as we talk about the impact of ai and machine learning and the ability for additional players to develop applications on top of these core technologies. Well, Charles definitely seems to be excited about it. I, it's kind of infectious. I was, I'm excited about it, hearing him and about what the potential is here. So that definitely stood out to me overall. Fantastic discussion. I really enjoyed, learned a lot from Charles. I hope you did too. As always really appreciate you listening and there's more to come next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Mobility podcast brought to you by Edison Manufacturing and Engineering. If you have a need for a trusted manufacturing partner for low volumes of highly complex products, then please visit us at edison-mfg.com or feel free to shoot me a note directly at brandon.bartnick at edison-mfg.com or visit my LinkedIn page, Brandon Bartnick. Edison specializes in build and assembly of highly complex products and annual volumes of 10 to tens of thousands utilizing an agile and capital light approach. If you're making an impact in the mobility space, we'd love to help. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Future Mobility Podcast.